All right, real quick before we dive in, again, I'm Bryant, lead pastor of um, our two locations, Wesley Chapel and Varico, if you're brand new with us. And before you don't come to church on December 31st, and please don't come, on January 7th, we're starting a brand new series called Seven Days to Live. And it's really all about time. The one thing that all of us are obsessed with is time. How much do I have? What time do I need to be there? How long is it going to last? Asking that a question a lot around the holidays. But we're obsessed with time because none of us feel like we have enough. And so in this series, we're really going to ask the question, like, what, what should you do with your time? And what if you had seven days to live? Like, what if you had the clarity that comes with like, here's how much time I have. What would I prioritize? What would I give up? What would I lean into? What would rise to the top of the list? And so what I think I can promise, this is going to be a super helpful series. Whether you are a longtime Jesus follower, it's also a great time if you know somebody who's been away from the church, still investigating this thing, because this kind of hits where all of us are at. And so this starts January 7th. I just want to encourage you to invest and invite. And invest means just go old school. Like actually invite somebody over to your house for dinner one time. Um, have a conversation, invite somebody to coffee, like invest in people around you outside of text message and social media, and maybe invite them on this Sunday, and I think it's going to be helpful. So last thing, next week's Christmas Eve, we have seven services, six here, one in Wesley Chapel, and I just want to ask you this question, because this is a massive, massive Sunday in the life of our house, and it's such an incredible opportunity, and I just want to ask this question that some of you will relate to. Think back to that moment, and for some of you it's not so much a moment, but for some of you it is. Think back to that moment where everything changed, where you maybe came to the realization that the Jesus thing's legit. Like, there really is forgiveness that's offered in him. For some of you it hits you different. Maybe the specific application was, man, I, I can have worth. Or my previous church experience is not synonymous with who Jesus is. Or there is life, there is hope, there is a future, there is meaning that is offered through him outside of the just rat race Monday through Friday. Imagine that moment or think back to that moment when everything changed for you. And I just want to remind you of this one thing, and this is not overstating anything, is that for maybe hundreds of people, this coming weekend is going to be that moment where everything is going to change for them. And so we're asking every CCer to invest and invite to just pray for 30 seconds of courage, to start a conversation, to share somebody something, to grab the card on your seat, to grab the invite we're giving away as you go out, and just see what God does to pray, and then to maybe rearrange your schedule to be here for a service or two, and just see what God might do. And I just always want to remind you of this. This is our mission as a church. It's why we're here. It's why we're in this city. It's why we're in Wesley Chapel. It's why we're moving forward in bold faith. Because there's a bunch of people who do not know and have not experienced the hope that you've experienced. And I just want to share this last thing, and I'm going to be done because I couldn't go without sharing this. A couple weeks ago, I had a really good friend text me, and he just lost his father. And I've known him for uh, many years. In fact, he was uh, my first boss out of college, and now he attends Centerpoint, and we love their family. But his, his father passed away several weeks ago, and, and one morning I was studying in my office, and I got a series of texts from him, and, and here's what he said, and he asked me to share these. But here's what he said in his text, and I'll just end with this. I want to thank you for something big. Several years ago, and probably several times, you asked us as a church to pray for someone specific. And to have 30 seconds of courage. And maybe the one person that I was most concerned about was my dad. I prayed specifically for him and for his salvation. That he accepts God's gift of salvation. I had a conversation with him and said, are, are you ready to accept? And his response was, 
I believe I just have some things to work out before I feel like I can be forgiven. I basically took so much of what we talk about at CC and told him he has been forgiven, that there is nothing he can do to earn it. There is nothing he can do to be more forgiven. That conversation didn't produce an immediate I'm forgiven or salvation moment. But I can say that in time, he worked through his issues and accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He became very involved in his church, and his last words, this is just a few weeks ago, his last words I think anyone ever heard come from his mouth was a request for prayer. To that I say, hallelujah. And then he ended with this final text and a string of texts. If you could, please remind everyone to take 30 seconds of courage. Never be afraid of inviting or having that awkward conversation because you will never regret it. So just a reminder, man, what hangs in the balance, it's always personal. It's a mom, it's a dad, it's a brother, it's a sister, it's a cousin, it's a friend, it's an aunt, and somebody maybe has been praying for them for decades. And I know we hit on this a lot, but you can't be the church or call yourself the church and not care for the people in the city and the communities where that church has been placed. So let's pray, let's invite, let's be bold, and let's see what God does in the lives of hundreds of people that literally may walk in as skeptics and leave as full-on followers of Jesus. So would you guys, one more time, stand with me. And I want to pray for this next weekend because it's a big deal. And then we'll dive into part three. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. And Lord, I know for some, depending on their church experience, this is their first time here, that, that Lord, maybe they've, they've seen things like this really, Lord, messed up and, and things done that, Lord, just made them feel kind of like a project. And I just pray that they would know that that our heart is that there's not any single person who's a project, just people who are made in the image of God, and they are loved ferociously by you. And because of that, they should be loved ferociously by us, to be friends, to love them, whether they ever believe or embrace what we believe. But Lord, we cannot help because so many of us have experienced the fact that we have had forgiveness and life and hope and reconciliation and, and for some of us, new purpose that was birthed. And we want people around us to know what we've experienced. And we are not better. We are just forgiven and freed. And so God, help us to be the church on mission, the movement that we were called to be to our city, to our families, to our neighborhoods, to the places where we work. And we ask that you would do something beyond what we can even imagine this next week as people move from death to life, lost to found, and they experience the life and hope that is only found through the name of Jesus and all that that represents. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated all over the house. We are in part three of this series called A Simple Christmas, and I'm not really going to recap other than to say this. Christmas is complicated. If you got kids, it's complicated. It's cool, but it's complicated. It's complicated finding out where you're going to spend it. It's complicated dealing with issues that are present all year long, but they're more prevalent and relevant at Christmas. And so we've said this in this series that, that Christmas and the season of Christmas may be complicated, but the message doesn't have to be. And in fact, if you could sum it up, I would sum up the message of Christmas in three words. Love that we looked at in week one, peace that we looked at last week, and as we kind of end this portion of the series, the final word is power. But to get to that word, I want to start by kind of asking you a question, and it comes from Matthew, really. Matthew chapter 118. If you've got your CC app, you can go to media and resources and sermon notes and check all that out there or follow along in your Bible and it'll be on the screen. But here's what Matthew says. Matthew, who sits down to record the life and document the birth of Jesus and the message of the Christmas story, and he says this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. 
So how did the, the birth of Jesus the Messiah come about? Like, we think we know, but how did this all go down? And, and Matthew lets us know right up front that he believes that Jesus, and he hung around him, they were tight, he believes that Jesus really was the Messiah. Now, before we dive in, I want to unpack two words, and so just hang with me for a second because I'm going somewhere, so trust me, all right? The first one is this word Messiah. This comes from the Hebrew term that means Messiah. The Greek equivalent to this is what some of you think is the last name of Jesus, and it's not. Because you have the idea that it was Mary and Joseph Christ and their son, Jesus Christ, but that's not. The Greek um, is Christ that comes from the Hebrew that means Messiah. And then one other word that you just have to know as we move forward, and I'll tie this back in, is Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is the Latin translation that comes from a Greek term that comes from a Hebrew term that means Yeshua. Did you catch that? So like in the Greek and Hebrew, aren't you glad you came to church? In the Greek and Hebrew, there's no J. And so this is a Latin term from a Hebrew term or a Greek term that comes from a Hebrew term. And it means Yeshua or literally Joshua because there's no J in the Greek or Hebrew language. So we've been pronouncing Jesus' name wrong for centuries. It's actually Joshua. So here's the big takeaway for you. Maybe this is why you came. Maybe this is why your prayers aren't getting answered. Jesus is like, until you can, or God's like, until you can pronounce the name of my son right, don't even bother. Like, you've had it wrong for all these centuries. So it's really, it's really Joshua. So here's my point in all that. This is big time relevant to the Christmas story, maybe nobody ever told you. Because when in the first century, the Jewish people were waiting for the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, they were waiting for, they were waiting for Joshua. They, they believed through all the prophecies, and it was true, that the Messiah, the Christ, would kind of be in the form of the Old Testament Joshua, that he would take on the characteristics of Joshua. And who was Joshua in the Old Testament, if you don't know? Joshua was a warrior king. Joshua was a fighter. Joshua was a general. Joshua was a military man. And so everybody in the first century, all of the Jews, everybody who was waiting for the promised Messiah in Christ were waiting for the shadow of Joshua, the warrior king that would come to free them of all of their oppressors. That's the thing they were waiting on. That's the thing that ultimately they were anticipating would be birthed. And so Matthew says that this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, in the previous generations, this meant that you're going to get stoned to death. This meant that maybe you're going to get burned. But at this point in history, a lot of the Jews has kind of let go of the literal applications of some of the Old Testament law, but something still had to be done in their culture if they were going to take the law seriously. It wasn't necessarily going to be burning or, or stoned to death, but something had to happen in these situations where you were found to be unfaithful in the relationship with Mary and Joseph. And, and then here's the other thing that, that maybe gives some kind of insight in terms of how Joseph is going to respond to the news that Mary, who's pledged to be married, um, is pregnant. Part of the way or reason Joseph responded the way he did, and don't take offense to this, especially if you're Catholic, wait all the way to the end, okay? But Mary was crazy. Like, imagine the conversation, Mary, who is confronted by her mom, and her mom's like, I, what, what boy in the neighborhood? He's like, no, no, don't worry. It's from an angel. I mean, imagine Joseph coming to have conversation. Like, how could you? Are you sitting? No, 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 Joseph, you don't understand. 
An angel visited me. That's how I'm pregnant. Like everybody thought she was nuts. And so Joseph in the first century is thinking, I'm not going to stone her. I'm not going to, we're not going to burn her because she's mentally unstable. So we've got to do something different. I mean, this was their thought process. So what do you do? So verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, her fiance, was faithful to the law, meaning he wanted to, as best he could, abide by the Old Testament law. He took it seriously. So he knew that he wasn't going to stone her, he wasn't going to burn her, but he had to do something, shame her. I mean, there's some kind of consequence that the law demands. And so he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He didn't want her to have the first century equivalent of a TMZ moment in the middle of the public square where everybody knows what she's done. And so it says that verse uh, end of verse 19, he had in mind to divorce her quietly, meaning he hadn't decided, he was thinking about it. He could easily go to a priest, get it annulled. Nobody would really know about it. So he's pondering all of this in verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said. And so here's what the angel of the Lord says to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, son of David, not literally, but in the line or lineage of David. Joseph, son of David, do not... Be afraid, because Joseph was terrified. To take Mary home as your wife. Why was he afraid? Because Joseph knows the moment he takes Mary to be his wife, that his reputation is going to be ruined. There's a bunch of negative ramifications in culture, and so the angel says, don't be afraid, just take her as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, quick time out, because if you're a skeptic, if you're online watching, you're in the house, and, and this is what we just talked about a few minutes ago, the beauty of what God is doing here is a bunch of longtime followers, and, and even in this room, a bunch of agnostics, people who are searching, many of you I know. And we haven't chatted for a couple weeks, so you should just, let's chat for a second. If you have issue with this whole virgin birth thing, here's what you just need to consider for a second, is that in the first century, no Jewish person expected a virgin birth. And I'll tell you why that's important in a second. No Nobody was anticipating it. Nobody was ready for it. It wasn't paramount to the story. In Isaiah, where Isaiah points to a virgin birth, the Hebrew word in Isaiah simply means a young maiden or a young unmarried person. No Jewish person was waiting for a virgin birth. Nobody, in fact, they expected the opposite. They expected the Messiah would have an earthly father and he would come from the line of David. In fact, it wasn't even paramount to the story in their minds at that point. Because they thought it was some weird knockoff of Greek mythology. That, that in Greek mythology, the gods would come down and they would mate with attractive, young, you know, human beings. And it's where you get the stories like, who was the father of Hercules? Anybody remember in Greek mythology? Zeus. So that was, it just was weird. So nobody expected it. Nobody was anticipating it. When the Messiah showed up, they weren't thinking, well, it's got to be a virgin birth. Check that off. And it was weird in terms of they thought it was Greek mythology. And then the last thing, and this is just important to consider if you're grappling with all of this, it didn't help the story. Like for Matthew to sit down and write the fact that she was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was a virgin birth because nobody was expecting it. It didn't move the story forward. So the fact that Matthew would sit down and manufacture a story about a virgin birth being birthed by the Holy Spirit doesn't make any sense because it did not move the story forward. It didn't want to make people follow this movement of Jesus. It didn't move this place to something that had more credibility. It hurt its credibility. And so all that to say, the only reason that Matthew recorded the fact that there was a virgin birth is because there was a virgin birth. 
It did not help the story. It was insane to do so if you're trying to move the movement forward. And in fact, the foundation of the Jesus movement is the resurrection, not the virgin birth. The virgin birth absolutely happened, and it's paramount to the story. But on Easter weekend, when Jesus had died, none of his followers were sitting around going, man, he's dead, and everything's dead with him, but at least we got the virgin birth to hang on to, right? No. They only re-engaged when Jesus walked out of a tomb alive. So all of that to say, there is no reason that Matthew would have made this up. And so an angel comes to Mary and then to Joseph and says, you're, you're going to have a son who... who is from the Holy Spirit. In verse 21, she will give birth to this son, and you are to give him the name. And this is where the drum roll starts, and the track changes, and the music changes, and everything gets dramatic. You are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, And at this moment, Joseph has got to be thinking, okay, so let me get this straight. An angel shows up to me, and he shows up to my fiance and tells me that she's pregnant, and don't worry, go ahead and marry her. It's from the Holy Spirit. And now I am to to name him Yeshua, Joshua, the warrior king, that, that I am to name my son the name of the promised Messiah. Are you kidding me? And the angel says, you're to name him Jesus because, and Joseph's thinking, no, no, you don't have to tell me because. I already know because. Because we have been oppressed for hundreds of years. We are oppressed by the Babylonians, by the Persians. We are, we are oppressed by the Greeks. We're oppressed by the Romans. You don't need to tell me because he's going to be Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, because he is going to move us to a place where we are freed from our oppressors. And the angel says, and he will save his people. And again, Joseph is thinking, whoa, 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 of course, of course he's going to save his people. Because that's what Yeshua, that's what Joshua does. That's what we've been waiting for. He moved them out of Canaan. He moved them through Jericho. He, he moved them past their invaders. He drove out the oppressors and he led us into the promised land. And he is now here. And it's crazy. He's my son, but he is the warrior king that has come to deliver us. And so you're going to name him Joshua and he's going to save his people from there. And again, one more time, Joseph is like, from their oppressors. I know, from our invaders, from, from our Roman occupiers. Angel, thank you for showing up, but I already know what he's going to do. Because we've known this for centuries. And I got to admit, we lost hope for a while. It's been 2,000 years since you made the initial promise to Abraham, and we've been waiting. There's been 400 years of silence where you have not seemed to be active. But we know this has been promised. He, and I can't believe he's my son, but he is Yeshua. He is Joshua. He is the long-awaited warrior king who's going to free us from all of our oppressors, most notably Rome. And so the angel says, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And right there, Joseph's like, ah. All due respect. That's not a felt need. That's not a felt need. If you gather all of the Jewish people together and you ask, like, what do you need saving from? Or, or like, what do you really, really need? This is not even going to show up on the list. Like, okay, angel, all due respect. Apparently, you are not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
Like this, there, it's nowhere else. See, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like, our, our, our basic needs is first physiological. We need food, we need water. And then after that, angel, we need safety because, you know, once you have that, there's this feeling of safety and security. And then we need belonging, we need love, we need care, we need community. And if we have that, it leads to this, this place of, you know, individual self-esteem and ultimately self-actualization. So angel, all due respect, this does not even show up on the list. This is not a felt need. None of the Jewish people are waiting for this. I mean, come on, we have a sophisticated save you from your sin system already. It's called the temple. There's a million rules. There's all these different things of different sins and what we're supposed to do if we have that sin or this sin. I mean, all of that has been taken care of. So angel, that, that's, that doesn't show up on the radar. See, here's what, angel, here's what needs to happen is Rome needs saving from their sins. And we need saved from Rome. That's what Joshua and Yeshua is supposed to do. And, and we need a savior with a sword. But guess what? Joseph didn't say any of those things. And you know why? This is deep. Get ready, you might want to take this down. Because when an angel shows up and talks to you, you do not talk back. <laughs> right? Like, I'm so skeptical of the story. Well, I, I, God just, he spoke to me and the angel spoke to me. I'm like, no, 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 no. Unless that story ended with you wetting your pants, unless that story ended up with you face down eating the pavement, unless your face melted off at some point in the conversation, you did not have an angel show up and speak to you because everywhere in scripture, when an angel shows up, something happens and you're never confused. He never speaks with a stutter. There's never ambiguity. You're never like, did an angel speak? Did God? No, no, you know know when God shows up or an angel shows up on behalf of God and communicates to you. And the only response that you have is to do whatever they tell you to do. So here's the crazy thing is that, that sometimes if God decides to speak directly, it has the power to override your free will. It's the mystery of God because, and again, if you don't believe, I'm, I'm not trying to be offensive, but it's the mystery of God. If God were to show up in all of his glory you would lose your choice in the matter. It's like you putting your hand over a fire, your free will to hold your hand over the fire, but eventually that pain is going to override your free will. And if the majestic, all-powerful God of the universe decides to show up in all of his glory, there is no choice in the matter. And so there Joseph is, and an angel shows up, and he speaks, and there's no doubt about the fact that he spoke in a dream. It was an angel. And so Joseph did what anybody did. Joseph did what you would do. Verse 24, when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. Do you know why that doesn't grab you at a greater degree? Do you know why that doesn't evoke more emotion in you? Do you know why that verse has saved people from it? Do you know why that doesn't cause you to get up and like just lift up both hands to go, are you kidding me? Do you know why there's a little bit of that inside of us that we wouldn't verbalize? I don't know if that's a felt need. I mean, I want my sins forgotten. I want to be saved, and that, that's great, but like that, it just doesn't grab me emotionally. Like, yes, I'm thankful for that. I sing songs about it, but it, it kind of doesn't seem sometimes to touch my what's going on right now in the moment. And it's just kind of something that doesn't tend to evoke a lot of emotion or, or power or stir us. See, here's what, here's what the angel said, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from 
their sins. But here's what we hear. And you're to give him the name Jesus because he will forgive his people of their sins. And if we're not careful, we minimize Christmas into something that is no more, and it's powerful, but no more than forgiveness. If we're not careful, Christmas in all of its power and beauty and the message of Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua coming to planet Earth becomes nothing more than forgiveness. In fact, some of you, that is your whole Christian journey. It is. Nobody's perfect, but God forgives me. My life is dysfunctional, but God will continue to forgive me. Nobody's perfect, but God forgives me. And that's been your entire Christian journey. And here's the thing. The message of Christmas is simple, but it's so much more profound than that. It is so much bigger than that. And if we reduce and minimize Christmas simply to forgiveness, we miss one of the primary messages of Christmas. Because Jesus said, listen, I have come not just to move you to a place to free you from the penalty of sin or the consequence of sin, because in many cases that's not going to happen. I have come to deliver and to release you from the power of sin. I have come in the spirit of Yeshua, in the spirit of Joshua, the warrior king, to deliver you from, to release you from the dominion of, the control of, slavery to. I have come to release you and deliver you from the power of sin. I am the warrior king who has come to rescue you and deliver you to a place where you can experience freedom. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, you see this. One of the most powerful examples is maybe one you know, even if you haven't been around the church, Jesus is going to the temple, and these guys are dragging this woman up the temple steps, the the woman caught in adultery. You know what I'm talking about? And she's been caught, if I can say this, by a bunch of voyeuristic peeping toms because they have to catch her in the act. And so they catch her in the act, and they literally drag her up the temple steps, and they place her on the temple steps, which is the last place that she wants to be. And she's 30 yards from where they're offering sacrifices for sin. She's 75 yards from the Holy of Holies where the presence of God resides. And there they are, and all of them have stones in their hands. And Jesus, because he's brilliant, is about to call their bluff. And so they're there around the woman, and they say, the law demands that that we have to stone her. And Jesus doesn't say it out loud, but he's like, no, no, it doesn't. You guys are not going to stone her. I'm going to call your bluff. And you're definitely not going to do it on the temple steps because nobody's going to stone anybody where all the sacrifices for sin are made and where everybody comes to worship. So you're not going to stone her. But Jesus is so brilliant, and so he kind of catches them at their own game and says to them, you remember this story? It's so great. Jesus says to them, okay, take her out to the valley of Gehenna and stone her to death. And whoever has not sinned, I want you to throw the first stone and start the execution. And everybody drops their stones and they walk away and the woman is all by herself and Jesus looks at her and he says two things and the one gets a lot of airplay and the other one we just skip right over. He says to the woman caught in adultery, he says, where where are your accusers? They're gone. Look look at me, look, eyeball to eyeball. I am the lamb of God. Like, I'm not a sub, I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, which always got Jesus in trouble. He'd go around forgiving people, and everybody would go, Well, only God can forgive people. And Jesus is like, Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And he says to this woman, I am the Lamb, personally, I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And maybe you know these words, I 
don't condemn you. Basically, I forgive you. And then he says words that don't get as much airplay. I don't condemn you. I forgive you. Now, I want you to leave your life of sin. And our response to that, is that possible? Is it possible to leave the dominion of, as we looked at last week, the nation of, the power of, slavery to sin, especially depending on what you're grappling with, how many years it's been, how woven you are to that habit? Is it really possible to be able to say no and have complete freedom, to be able to say yes to what Jesus is asking and not be shackled to this sin any longer? And Jesus says this to the Pharisees in John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Everybody thinks that's talking about Satan. I don't think it is. He's just talking about a thief. And he's he's about to contrast himself with what a thief does. And he says, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Come on. That sounds bigger than forgiveness. He's going, listen, I didn't come just to forgive you for. I came to free you from. Listen, I came to ultimately move to a place where you would be delivered from something and not just to forgive you for something. This is so much bigger. I'm inviting you into life. I am Yeshua. I am Joshua. I am the warrior king, and I have defeated sin. I have defeated death, and I am inviting you into a place where you can walk in a place of freedom, where sin no longer has the power to control you any longer. You can leave your life of sin. And then Paul comes along, and Paul, brilliant. Paul comes along, and he's writing to Roman Christians, and and he just so powerfully describes it this way. He describes why Jesus came, and he says, therefore, it's a command. Paul's going, I think this is possible. Therefore, don't let sin reign. Don't let sin be your king any longer. You have a new king. Do not let sin have control over you. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Basically, don't allow yourself to be under the authority of sin because it has no authority over you any longer. Paul, are you sure? Yes. Jesus came not just to forgive you for, he came to free you from, to deliver you from, in the spirit of Yeshua, to be your warrior king, to release you from the bondage of sin. And then he says, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather, meaning there's another option, like you, you're not never going to be perfect, but you can get off the treadmill of sin, ask forgiveness, and go back to the same deal again, forgive, you know, sin, ask for forgiveness, do it all over again. Instead, offer yourselves to God as the as those who have been brought from death to life, meaning I have come to give you full life. I have come to deliver you, not just to forgive you. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. And then here's where he just drops the gauntlet. Verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your master. And I love what Paul says, and and I don't have time to go into it, but Paul personifies sin as an entity. And he says, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, sin is not who you are any longer. Sin has no control over you. You can tell it to shut up, to stop. You can be free from any time that you want to. It's something that's coming against you, but the power of it has been released. 
Here's why you maybe engage in some behavior or decision or go somewhere, and then you get on the other side if you've ever done this and go, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? That wasn't even me. And Paul's like, yeah, exactly. Because if you are in Christ, every time you sin, it's an identity crisis. It is not who you are. It is not who you've been created to be. Your warrior king has released you, and you are saying yes to something that you don't have to say yes to anymore. You have been delivered. And then Paul ends this way. I love it. And you probably know this, even if you haven't been around the church, for the wages of sin is death. Sin always kills stuff. Sin always kills stuff. For some of you, you had, a, you had a marriage that was killed by sin. For some of you, your finances were killed by your lack of self-control sin. For some of you, you had a relationship that was obliterated and it was killed because of their sin or your sin or somebody in the middle. For, for some of you, your, your addiction has killed your ability to be able to relate with yourself. Sin has killed something. Sin always kills something. And come on, I don't want you to miss this because you, just, you need to lead into this. Even forgiven sin kills stuff. Even forgiven sin kills stuff. There are, there are a bunch of people in some kind of penitentiary or in prison somewhere, and they're going to spend a portion of or their whole life there, and they have genuinely moved to a place where they have been forgiven. They have been to a place where they've been freed, but it does not free them of the result of what sin kills. Sin always destroys. It always leads to death. Even forgiven sin kills. And Paul says, the warrior king has arrived. Joshua, Yeshua, who can free you from that. You do not have to live in it any longer. And then he says this, because the gift of God, it's Christmas. The gift of God is eternal life. And eternal life, nowhere in scripture, is synonymous with just heaven. It's misinterpreted. It means the moment you place your faith and trust in Christ New life begins. And it'll take you all the way to heaven. But it starts right now. So Paul says, if you've ever come to the place to realize what Jesus has done for you, that, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, and realize you couldn't earn your way to him, but you trusted what he's done for you. If you've ever entered into relationship with Jesus, eternal life has started for you. And you may not be walking in it, but it is what you've been forgiven because the message of Christmas is not just forgiven for, it's freedom from. And in Christ, and in Christ, sin is no longer your master. Not because of the law, but because of the power of the Spirit of God in your life. You have been freed. And so I just want to end with this. There's a bunch of you inevitably watching online or podcasting or in the room this morning. And there's been a moment. Or maybe like me, there's been, there was a moment when I was like six and then there was 49 of them when I was 14 where I placed my faith and trust in Christ just to make sure. You don't need to do that, but it's... But there's been, however it looked, there was a moment where you placed your faith and trust, not in you, but in what Jesus has done for you. And you're living on this cycle of sin, forgive, and then back at it again. Sin, forgive, and back at it again. And there's habits, and there's some, there's some lifestyle things, and there's some temperaments, there's some, 
whatever it is that, that's still kind of following you around. And, and here's what I just want to tell you. And the only thing that can move this from your head to your heart is not me. The Spirit of God has to do it in this moment. You're like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz with the ruby red slippers. You can go home anytime you want. You can be free anytime you want. And so maybe somebody just needs to tell you that. From the authority of, of the words of Paul, who was inspired by the Spirit of God to be able to give us this 2,000 years later to go, listen, this is way bigger than forgiveness. Maybe you just need to hear it. So I, I just want to tell you right now. Sin is not your master. Sin is not your master. Sin is not your master. Lust is not your master. Your anger is not your master. Your prescription drug addiction is not your master. These reactions that you cannot seem to control is not your master. These habits that have followed you for a decade and you've just given up and now you're, you're just content with the treadmill Christianity that everybody's offering. It is not your master. And you just need to know that you are free. Well, I don't feel free. You may not feel it and you may not be living it, but you are free. And some of us have experienced this moment. And if it ever gets from your head to your heart, it will change everything. But I just want to tell you, you're free. The power of the Spirit of God resides in you, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And I know it seems unrealistic, but for some of you, because this is the power God's Word has, it's not me, I can't do this. For some of you, this will be your moment, and you will walk in here, an addict, you will walk in here controlled by your anger, and you will walk out beginning to get freed of whatever this thing is, because you have the power of the Spirit of God in you, and it's not your master. It whispers that it's your master. You think it's, you feel it's your master, but you have been released. And in any time you want, you can say no to sin and you can say yes to God. You can do what the woman caught in adultery did. It's the invitation of Christmas. Hey, hey, anytime you want, you can leave your life of sin. That's why I get up every, almost every morning, I'd say. And I just take this passage literally, and, and sometimes it's with my hands in the air. God, I just want to identify with what's true today. And it's weird, but I just take what Paul says. Look, God, I give you my eyes. God, I give you my hands. I give you my feet. I want to go where you want me to go today. And I just want to identify right now what, what, what is true. And for me, I need it every day. I am not going to allow something to be my master that is no longer my master. I have been set free. And I'm telling you, if that ever gets from your head to your heart, it'll change everything. It's why there's people listening online or in the house. And they want to stand up and shout right now. Because there was a moment where you understood that. It's not always a moment, but for some of us it is. For me, it was, there was never doubt about my relationship with Jesus, but it was in the car during my undergrad, and it was hearing a message on these very passages where I can't explain it, but just the reality hit me of what I had heard hundreds of times, and I just sobbed, and I wanted to get up and leap. I am not a slave to sin any longer, and it is not going to be my master. Because I have been set free. 
So last thing, and I got to be done. If you're just grappling with this whole thing and you're not sure if you even believe it, and there's, there's a bunch of you here even today, and we're so glad. I don't mean this to be offensive, but if you ever get tired of you, like this cycle that you can't break out of, these things where you let you down. You know, nobody's let us down more than we have. And if you ever just get fed up and tired with that, I just want you to know sin does not have to be your master. And you have a standing invitation of Christmas to be invited into a relationship where you can be free. And you're to give him the name Jesus because he's gonna save his people from their sin. Would you bow your head, close your eyes over the house? Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the message of Christmas that you loved us and because of that, we've been called to love other people around us. And I pray even this week, God, we would do it well. And then as we looked at last week, that only happens when we come to a place to experience peace with you that leads to us having peace with ourselves so that we can make peace with other people, so that we can love other people. And then all of that hinges on what we're talking about today when we are awakened to the reality that your power resides in us. And so I just pray all over this room, take my feeble words and attempt to be able to communicate something that is so profound and do what I cannot do. But in these moments, I pray that you would bring these words to life. Sin is not our master. God, set free, rescue, through the power of what maybe many of us experience, even in this moment, start revival, change our city, Help us to look up. <laughs> you are so much bigger than what generally we pray for and expect. And so we're believing above and beyond in every way today for what you're doing in the heart of every person in this place. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' incredible name.